This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Nick Fike. Nick is a freelance journalist and former editor of The Monthly, and he joined me to talk about the Federal Labor Government's response to the 2023 Intergenerational Report, including warnings about the climate crisis. We also talk about the latest emissions figures as well as the serious lack of whistleblower protections in Australia and a new service that's been launched to protect and empower whistleblowers who want to speak up. Then, I was joined by Lucinda Holdforth, speechwriter and author. She joined me to talk about what's wrong with 21st century virtues. She talks about how they've been captured by neoliberal thinking and believes that the quest for these attributes encourage people to put self before community. To ensure a healthy democracy, do we need to reconsider what we think of as admirable traits in ourselves and each other? Her essay is out now through Monash University Publishing, and it's called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Then, finally, I was joined by historian Professor Darius von Guttner. Darius is based at the Australian Catholic University in Canberra, and he joined me to talk about the TV show The Great. The Great is a humorous 18th century period TV series from Australian writer-director Tony McNamara. Loosely based around the life of Catherine the Great, reigning Empress of Russia between 1762 and 1796, Darius thinks that Catherine was even more fascinating in real life than her TV show character. A friend of philosophers Diderot and Voltaire, a patron of women artists, and a believer in science. Was she a truly enlightened ruler? I'm very pleased to be joined by Nick Fike. He is joining us once again to talk about some very important topics, and I'm so excited to delve deeply into them with him. He's a freelance journalist and former editor of The Monthly, and he's been writing some excellent columns recently, uh, one in particular for crikey.com.au, which is well-titled Labor's hypocritical response to the climate crisis is a sad joke on us all. And he's also been writing for The Monthly as well. And one of those um, particular pieces that he's written is called Whistle While We Work. And that is focused on the issue of whistleblowing in Australia and just how difficult it is for whistleblowers to come forward and be protected. And we all know that very well with a lot of the current court cases that have been ongoing, really. So we'll be talking about that and um, a new initiative to address it as well. Uh, So really, I'm very excited to finally welcome Nick onto the show. Hi there, Nick, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, hi, Amy. It's a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you again. It's so great to chat. And I am um, a big fan of your tweets, I've got to say, um, and I know that everyone thinks Twitter might be over, but I, I haven't given up on it yet. And one example of that is, of course, um, advocacy and grassroots campaigning. And if anyone had been tuning into Spin Cycle recently for Radiothon, they would have heard John Kudelka talking to them about the Walkley Awards, and it's something that you have also been tweeting about. So I just wanted to let people know through the medium of the radio, if you're not on Twitter and you weren't aware, um, about this issue around the Walkley Awards, which feeds right into our first conversation about climate change um, and obviously fossil fuels and um, development of that and ongoing investment in it. Nick, would you mind just giving us a quick update as to that issue around the Walkley Awards and what 
has really arisen over the last couple of weeks for a lot of journalists and cartoonists in the press gallery? Yeah, sure. So the Walkleys is... uh, well, one of the, the founders of the Walkley Foundation was a guy called Walkley, um, who was uh, a fossil fuel baron, um, and uh, that you know that that was sort of that's a historical fact, and you know people are pretty um, you know that, that's that's okay. Of course, these things happen, you know. Mm-hmm. But the issue that um, that journalists in 2023 have is that Ampol is is the platinum sponsor of the Walkley Awards this year. So as a fossil fuel company sponsoring the major journalism awards, um, myself and a few other people, most notably, and and leading the charge were Australia's greatest cartoonists. And they said, well, we're we're not going to enter ourselves into the Walk the Awards as a protest against fossil fuel sponsorship. So... The Walkleys have, and, and they, they were then joined by, you know, the excellent Rachel Withers and and uh, I, I joined them as well and quite a few other journalists. Um, there's no Environmental Journalism Award. There's no Climate Change Journalism Award either. So this is another issue at the Walkleys. But, look, they um, uh, have promised to review their sponsorship policy, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But um, it's just something that I think yeah. uh, people are increasingly aware of in 2023 that, um, that you, you you can't let organisations be a forum for greenwashing um, fossil fuel interests, at least. This is my opinion. Certainly, and it's definitely the opinion of, of John Kudelka and others. And, you know, as he was saying on Spin Cycle, it's there's no skin off his nose to not enter um, the Walkley Awards in the sense that he's already won some and, you know, it, he's not sacrificing a whole lot, but it does have a lot of meaning when people gather together and to say, well, actually, you know, our values are shifting um, we need to reassess some of the the decisions and also to think about where we want to go as a society. And obviously that is something that the intergenerational report is meant to do as well, um, supposedly. And a lot of people might have heard of this uh, title, the intergenerational report, and a lot of the reporting around the release of the report every year is about our ageing population, uh, the fact that we're going to need more um, nurses and care workers in the care economy to look after um, this great ageing population. But I guess the, the elephant in the room has often been climate change. Um, But in this intergenerational report, Nick, climate change is mentioned and the Labor government we now have in, obviously we've had about 10 years of coalition government, so um, climate change was clearly a different focus for them or or not a focus at all. But now we do have a a federal Labor government. I'm sure many listening would be wondering whether the tone has shifted and the response to some of these issues has changed. So would you mind taking us through your assessment of, A, the intergenerational report, as in what it's warning us um, when it comes to climate change, and then we'll shift into uh, the the federal Labor government's response. Yeah, for sure. So the intergenerational report is a a long-term report on sort of economic trends that are going to affect, you know, Australia. So it's part demographic report, part economic projections into the future. It's sort of looking at... um, tax issues in the future. And for more or less the first time this time, uh, it it tried to assess, put a, put a dollar figure on the economic impact of climate change. And they said, 
that the um, that it could be up to $420 billion over the coming 40 years, which sounds like a massive amount of money, but in fact it only reflects sort of 0.5 of a percentage point of GDP over that period. And I was looking at these figures and thinking, well, it's good that they, you know, at least trying at some at trying to put a number on it. But this number actually makes very little sense. But for for two reasons, which you know, um, two reasons that, that I think just have to be mentioned. So one is that if we're heading towards uh, a, a climate that's two to three degrees warmer which we are, according to all the scientists, unless there's radical change happening, it's not going to be 0.5 of a percentage point of GDP shaved off off the top of our economy. It's going to have the sort of effects that change our civilization. I mean, you can't possibly look at the costs of insurance when you have two and a half degrees of warming you can't possibly give a fair, accurate, an accurate assessment of the costs of flooding and the costs mm. of to agriculture, and 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 this report barely even tries. As in, you know, <laughs> so buried in the in the back of the intergenerational report, it says that they haven't even assessed the impacts of drought or heat waves. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, the figure is. Meaningless, mm. but for for a second reason, I, th- I think, you know, we have to draw attention to this. You can't come out and say, "Oh, oh my gosh, climate change is really going to cost us in the future. We're going to have to save our pennies now," when you're actually investing yourselves in fossil fuels. So our government, on the one hand, is saying, "Well, it's going to cost us in the future." On the other hand, our government's literally subsidising fossil fuels to the to the value of ten billion dollars a year at the moment. They're still investing in in uh, gas production facilities up for the Beetaloo. They're still opening new coal mines. They're still pushing through major new gas reserves for exports of gas. I, it's it seems. I mean, we all thought that it was a climate election, but we seem to have voted in a government that has no intention at all of taking radical action. So I I thought it was hypocritical, if not duplicitous, to say that we're looking at the impacts of climate change on the future while we're not doing anything about climate change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you also point out that we're we're still allocating annually $10 billion in fossil fuel subsidies, which I'm sure many people would think is outrageous. Um, But... I think there's one particular uh, line that I love in your piece, and I'm probably just going to read it out for an excuse to swear, which is that, um, quote, it takes a metric shit ton of cognitive dissonance to believe that our gas and coal aren't going to cause climate chaos in Australia. So that's apparently what we invest in now. We call these investments carbon credits. And this reminds me of our last conversation, Nick, because we did delve into a piece that you wrote for the monthly about carbon credits and how, you know, net zero by 50-50 is also quite a um, a furphy. And the, the kind of messaging and policies, climate policies that the Labor government have at the moment appear to be more like window dressing than they are about addressing the climate. So, you know, could you, I guess, expand a little bit on that element of your yeah. thinking and your piece as well for those who might not have heard that part of our conversation? 
Yeah, so when we talked, I think it was just before the safeguard mechanism was 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 legislated, or around about that time. Yeah. And and myself and a bunch of people, uh, like at the Australia Institute, for example, Polly Hemming's been doing great work, and a few a small handful of other people were saying the safeguard mechanism is essentially a way that that corporations can buy offsets and carbon credits instead of reducing their uh, reducing their emissions. So you have these schemes where they um, purport to plant trees or uh, change um, <clears throat> change their management of, of forests or these things. It turns out that about 80% to 90% of, of all carbon credits are useless. They're junk. They're not, as in you can get credits for not cutting down trees, for example, and that's what a large number of the credits are for. Anyway, the warnings that that you know that we were giving about the safeguard mechanism seem to be playing out because companies are just buying offsets mm. and they're not reducing their emissions. So in the most recent uh, emissions report, so we're a year into the Albanese government, you would think that you'd start to see some sort of impact uh, in terms of government policy uh, on 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 what companies are doing and and uh, emissions generally. Amy. Australia's emissions not only didn't go down, they went up. They've been they're going up. So people, companies like Woodside have bought all the offsets that they need until 2030, all the offsets they need to not cut emissions. So there's there's a whole bunch of smoke and mirrors mm. in in the government policy, and I sort of you know match these things up with these warnings that the intergenerational report gives and you have sad-faced politicians earnestly warning about how we're going to have to tighten our belts in the future because we've got declining workforce participation an aging population etc but built into the actual into the projections that they have even in that report is the fact that they're not going to spend more money on services as in the tax-to-GDP ratio, it, it's a set number. That's what's built into the intergenerational report. So it's like they're saying, wow. we're not actually going to change anything. We're just going to warn you now so that, you know, and I, I'm going to, you know, be blunt here. It's essentially to say, boomers, save your money, use all the tax concessions because you're going to be spending your own money mm. in the future on healthcare and aged care. There's nothing about housing. There's nothing to say, well, we're going to shift the, the, the ratio of tax away from companies, you know, away from, from personal income tax to corporations. You know, we all know that they're, that they're reaming in these massive profits at the moment. And yet, what's the plan? You know, if you look forward to six months, if there's such a, a problem with taxation, why are they giving tax cuts to the wealthiest? There are just so many of these weird contradictions built into it. So I find it very hard to take it seriously. I've got to say I'm appalled, really appalled, <clears throat> because we're already paying so much for healthcare and, you know, the, the government placing such an emphasis on private health insurance and, you know, the public system is crumbling. You know, the, the point of a Labor government, surely, especially after having a national conference, uh, is about what they originally you know, were set up for social democracy, intervening where there is inequality. Yeah, and a couple of days after 
the uh, conference where the party tried to get the, the government to commit to corporate tax reform. Jim Chalmers ruled it out. So essentially, mm. you know, they're sticking with stage three tax cuts for the wealthy, and that's going to come in next year. So, you know, you can't be belly aching about a problem with, with the tax base when you're blowing a hole in it and giving all the money to literally the wealthiest people in Australia. It, it sort of it, it drives me a bit crazy that there's not a more sort of sensible um, conversation about these things. Do we, are we really tightening our belts? Um, no one, no, no one seems to be tightening their belts much at all. Um, and, I mean, the other thing with these these kind of projections is that an intergenerational report, you know, a report on 40 years of economic activity is just so full of just assumptions. You can model Mm. it to say whatever you want. So Mm. essentially they're trying to tell us that they know what the productivity rate is going to be in 30 years. They can't even tell us what the inflation rate is going to be in six months, let alone what insurance costs are going to be what agricultural production is going to be, let alone any sort of actual policy decisions. That's the strange thing is that there are no sort of major policy um, sort of shifts built into this report. Like most of the data is built on a continuation of of exactly how things are now. So, you know, for all the... um, you know, listeners under 50 that RRR has, like, good luck because they're not planning to change much if, if these projections are correct. No, no. I mean, you point out the real sad fact, which is that um, this is really essentially policy timidity and it's at a very extreme level, really. Um, but it's also really just continuing on with coalition policies. There isn't a huge distinction at the moment between Labor and Liberal, at least in this area. Yeah, no, literally uh, literally the data that they use is often just a reflection of today's economy and then just extended. So, you know, we've had 10 years of coalition government. We've had a government that's coming in and basically... Uh, its main policy um, items have been coalition policies, as in the tax cuts, the very expensive submarines, the climate policy is one that was essentially built by a coalition, by the coalition. Uh, and you know, there's, I, you know, I defy you to point to a major kind of economic policy that the Labor government has introduced that will change any of these trends. You know, their housing policy is is the most kind of timid. Mm. Uh, it'll probably work out being less in public housing spending than you know the than the historical average. Um, yeah, there's 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 not a lot going on in a policy sense. So you know, when they do model it based based on historical data, you can see why they're doing it because they're not actually, you know, they're not actually planning to change that much. No, they're not. And um, I guess one thing that, you know, this whole conversation brings up for me is um, something that you just mentioned earlier about insurance. And it just, it reminded me of some anecdotal reports I'd been reading. And of course, everyone might be familiar with these things called Facebook community groups. But um, there are ones that I'm part of, and and apart from, you know, getting the usual, was that a helicopter and has anyone lost their dog? I did also see that more and more of the people um, have been getting insurance companies saying, we're not going to insure you anymore, or if you if you want to change to us, we won't insure you, or mm-hmm. your premium's going up by huge, huge amounts. And suddenly, mo- multiple people are having these 
hey, is this happening to you? We haven't ever flooded. We have, you know, no, no likelihood of flooding, we thought. And now suddenly um, the insurance companies are changing their tune. So, you know, this also highlights that cognitive dissonance you point out there because clearly business and commerce are making these adjustments for, as you say, a three-degree hotter world, which is our current path if Australia continues to have these climate policies. But the government is sticking their heads in their sand, in the sand. I mean, that's a, a huge issue that clearly everyday Australians are currently facing, um, but there's no way to, to, I guess, force this back onto the government. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that and what the role is of, of people like, you know, independents that we voted in on a climate platform and the Greens and, and other crossbenchers. How can politics be shifted, if at all, in mm. another direction from where we are now? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, this is the this is the big question, isn't it? I mean, I think in in terms of the balance of power, you really only need two or three more independents who are who have kind of strong climate policies to change a lot of things. Um, so, you know, I, I personally hope for that at, at the next mm. election. But in terms of insurance, you know, I've been hearing about people whose insurance rates are tripling. Uh, of, of in, in America, there are whole areas um, being declared uninsurable now by the companies. Um, so all of these, these, eventually, these costs eventually get socialised. So it's the governments that have to pay out massive amounts of money. So the northern New South Wales coast, parts of Queensland, um, uh, are now on flood maps that are making insurance uh, almost impossible for normal people. Uh, and I think these things are just unavoidable. So, you know, we can put our heads in the sand, but um, when you have a population of people who can't afford to rebuild their house, houses, mm. uh, then you've got a, a real social problem and it's just not going to be acceptable for the government to say, well, you should have paid, paid, paid your insurance bill uh, when everyone knows that floods are getting worse and, you know, we've got a, a, a fire season coming up. And, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting this summer if we have the, the summer that's projected in terms of... Uh, extreme heats and dryness, uh, if there's a fire season coming through, it's going to be very hard for, for the government to continue to push this line that, uh, don't worry, we're offsetting our emissions while we export 90% of our gas to be burned overseas. Uh, don't worry, uh, we've got, you know, a renewable energy policy that in 2040 or something, you know, it's like that people will be screaming at some point. Um, and I think I think at this point the discussion is a little bit hamstrung by the fact that most people don't really understand that the Labor Party is doing very little that's any different from the previous government and in terms mm. of emissions, you know, like uh, why, why are these, why is the news that the emissions didn't go down not as important as the new economic figures that are coming out? You know, we... We, we sort of have a slightly warped sense of um, of what's going on around us at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it definitely slipped under the radar and obviously I saw um, news about it because I was on Twitter and saw Greg Jericho, who writes for The Guardian, um, post up his column and say that really our greenhouse emissions are a national disgrace, that they're his words, um, that are destroying the planet and costing households. And he points out um, that even the minister's media release essentially was, you know, 
shifting this under the carpet, saying that, quote, Australia's emissions are now 24.4% below June 2005 levels, um, essentially trying to reframe these very poor figures and the, the trajectory, which is bad, um, for Australia and, and obviously also the inclusion of land use, which makes these figures also distorted. You know, the government is using these clever, you know, I guess PR tricks to try and um, convince Australians and also even journalists that there's nothing really to see here. It's not a newsworthy story. Yeah, the, the land use, use of land use kind of credits or like to put that changes in land use into emissions figures is just is criminal. I mean, mm. it... It, New South Wales, Queensland, in fact, every state in the country, Western Australia, the land clearing rates have been off the charts for the past 20 years. The idea that you'd say that we somehow have got, we can save emissions because we've been improving our land use, like, no, it's just because you count certain things and you don't count other things. Like, they're not counting when they cut down forests as a negative. It's just that they, you know, when they want to get carbon credits from some piece of land, they'll claim that as a credit. That's even that is not the equivalent of an emissions cut. Uh, These figures are just they're cooked. Um, And you know, Bowen they they send out a lot of happy messages on the media on on social media like memes about how we've got a fabulous sort of you know that the renewable energy revolution is upon us and all this stuff. I mean, renewable energy obviously is is a critical thing, but unless you're cutting fossil fuel exploitation and burning and exporting, it's 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 not going to change. It's not going to reduce our emissions. It, they're still mm. rising. No, they, they certainly are, unfortunately, and I hope that uh, those listening who didn't know about it feel, um, I guess, better to know what's really happening because we really can't put our heads in the sand. Um, And there's another area, obviously, Nick, that we need to talk about here and that I guess there are some kind of commonalities between them in in the sense of being in denial about uh, issues that are a problem and also issues around transparency. And that is things like whistleblowing. Um, uh, You know, we've seen so many really high profile cases um, that have been dragging on in Australia. And you've written an excellent piece for the monthly uh, in the July edition called Whistle While We Work. And um, really, this is an issue that is ongoing. We thought potentially that with an incoming Labor government, they might um, change things for the better for all whistleblowers. And we did see some cases, uh, I guess, have their status changed, but not others. And you highlight uh, whistleblowers, both past and present. um, And there's obviously some significant overseas ones like Edward Snowden, Julian Assange and Daniel Ellsberg. Um, But there's also those local people in Australia, uh, people's cases and stories we might have heard of um, in the news, like Richard Boyle, who is facing prosecution um, around shining a light uh, in the Australian tax office. You also mentioned David McBride uh, regarding alleged war crimes committed by Australia and Afghanistan. And then also Bernard Collieri, who was pursued over um, the revelations on Australian spying in Timor-Leste. So, you know, this is also another area of interest, I'm sure, for many. And it certainly has been for me because I, I can't wrap my head around why uh, the government 
you know, is still doing this, is still treating people who have essentially come forward uh, for very altruistic reasons to try and make sure that um, an issue is addressed but also that it doesn't continue into the future and then they are essentially dragged through the mud um you know and no doubt their life has become extremely stressful among many other things they might lose their job um their reputation uh there's a huge amount of legal costs involved you know, can you take us through what brought you to i guess look at this issue of whistleblowing in australia um and then we can talk a little bit about uh, when we're wrapping up the um, the new initiative that is being brought forward to address some of these issues. Yeah, yeah. So um, when I was at the monthly, you know, we would occasionally deal with whistleblowers, but it was it's so fraught. Whistleblowing is such a dangerous activity. It, um, you know, as, as you said, it almost always um, affects your life terribly to be a whistleblower. So you know, the majority of people do see um, wrongdoing in their workplace. Uh, only a very small handful push it to the extent that, or, you know, push it so far uh, when when they see that something is not being done in response. Something like 1% of people who experience, who, who witness wrongdoing in their workplace will actually become those that, that kind of whistleblower, that sort of public figure that you read about and, and go to the media with their story. Uh, almost all of those 1% have their lives more or less torn apart. So they, they will either face criminal charges, they'll lose their career, they'll often lose their family and friends, their social circles. Life becomes very, very uncomfortable. So I was sort of fascinated because almost all of the whistleblowers that we know about drew attention to something that was a significant problem, either a human rights failure, like beyond belief, like war crimes, or problems in the tax office that were sort of similar to the robo-debt um, tax um, collections. <clears throat> and, you know, I was looking at a case in uh, Tasmania of, of a woman who blew the whistle on the abuses in the Ashley Youth Detention Centre, which were just beyond belief, the sorts of things that that she called out. Um, and so I sort of was interested in the, in the plight of the whistleblowers. And uh, I spoke to um, Kieran Pender, who's a, a lawyer and a journalist, and he said, oh, I'm starting up this initiative. It's, it, at that point, it was he said it was a whistleblowing legal service. And I thought, what? that's an amazing idea, because whistleblowers almost never get any support. There's no federal support for them. The laws that are supposedly in place, the main laws, both um, public and private, you know, state and, and corporate, uh, they, they've never worked to protect whistleblowers. And no whistleblower has ever got compensation for what they've done, for the remedies that they, uh, the consequences of their actions. They've never got compensation for them by any of the laws that we have. And it's, it, there's a whole combination of reasons. It's partly bad laws, but it's it's often just a sheer lack of, of legal resources. So Kieran was starting up this program through the Human Rights Law Centre called The Whistleblowing. It's, it's now called The Whistleblowing Project. And I just got talking to him and and it just seemed like a very, very, very good idea. So I sort of wanted to write about it. And then I spoke to various whistleblowers. And, you know, he's launched that now. It's it's a real thing. Whistleblowers can can go to this service, the Whistleblowing Project, for 
for advice and, you know, support and pointers. And if you can't get your message out, they have a way to get it out to people. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, look, it's another area where uh, the incoming government had promised all this support for these uh, four whistleblowers and they've done virtually nothing since. So obviously there's complete radio silence on Assange at the moment. Um, apart from the odd, well, we're giving him consular support. Uh, they're still prosecuting uh, McBride and Richard Boyle. They haven't changed the laws at all. Uh, they actually took out a whistleblowing. Uh, the whistleblowing authority was supposed to be built into the National Anti-Commission, Anti-Corruption Commission. That The original proposal for that by Helen Haynes had a whistleblowing authority built into it because you need to protect whistleblowers if you've got an anti-corruption commission because otherwise people won't present, especially sort of state government, state and federal government employees. They're not going to front up to an anti-corruption commission unless they're safe to do so. But that part got stripped out of the legislation um, by by Dreyfus and the Albanese government. So we're kind of at a very similar point now um, as we were, you know, a year ago. Though, you know, to, to credit the government, we do have this, this anti-corruption commission uh, and it's going to start soon. But, you know, even on that, we're not going to see what work they're doing mm. for a long, long time because they're not having public hearings. So they they've had like... 400 it was something like 400 referrals to to the NAC in the first month, and we don't know anything about any of them. Uh, we don't know how long investigations will take. We don't even know what they're investigating at this point. We won't see, you know, a la the Robo Debt Royal Commission, where you could tune in and actually watch it. And you could understand and see for yourself with your own eyes. In in the case of Australia, in the the federal NAC. It could be 18 months before we learn anything about any investigations. In fact, it probably will. And then when it arrives, we'll get a, a report which will be written in kind of legalese um, and it'll issue a finding. And yeah, I don't know, you know, there, maybe there'll be two or three days of sort of uproar and then we'll – I just don't understand. Yeah. There's, there's no way something that doesn't have public hearings will mm -hmm. have the same effect as something like RoboDebt did because we could watch and see and learn about it and report on it as it went. You know, you're not going to get these – you're not going to get months of coverage out of a report that's 600 pages long that's written by a couple of lawyers. No. That's my view. Oh, I agree. That That's what was so galling about that whole issue is everyone just said, oh, you should be grateful it got passed. We finally have one. Well, it's not the one that is needed. Um, and, you know, I know that you can't be perfect, but this was a pretty significant um, part of the puzzle that was left out deliberately. Uh, and it's, is it any wonder that politicians didn't want to have an abundance of public hearings? Uh, it all seems very convenient for them. Nick, we have covered a lot of ground and I'm so grateful to you for taking us through so many of these issues, which, as you say, were a major issue under the coalition government and are still an issue under this federal Labor government. Uh, we obviously in the next couple of weeks or, or even beyond that are going to be having conversations about another issue, that being the voice to parliament. Um, and I just thought I'd end that the conversation on that, uh, giving people, I guess, a reminder to make sure that um, that they've 
enrolled to vote, that their details are up to date, but also to um, be aware of the kind of misinformation that might be out there around uh, the voice to parliament and to, you know, be having these conversations, to be thinking about um, these issues of politics and talking with one another about them, not just climate change and insurance, but also some of those other issues that we've talked about um, today, like whistleblowing and also the voice to parliament. So thanks so much, Nick, for joining us. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks very much, Amy. And uh, I just would like to add uh, to listeners that I, I'm an unavowed, unashamed, unreserved supporter of The Voice. I've been following it for years through people like Megan Davis um, and Pat um, Pat Turner, um, Pat Anderson, sorry. And um, it's, you know, it's it's really important, I think, that people uh, do think about it carefully. It's it's, it's not going to solve every problem. It's a step in the right direction. So, But um, thank you for your time, Amy, and have a yeah. great day. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick. I've just been speaking with Nick Fike, freelance journalist and former editor of The Monthly, and we've just been talking about some issues relating to federal politics, including um, pieces that Nick has written for Crikey, Labor's hypocritical response to the climate crisis is a sad joke on us all, where we were talking about the government's response to the intergenerational report, uh, the emissions data that's just come out, and also, of course, whistleblowing, and as you just heard there, the voice, which is a very important topic, and I also am a big supporter of the voice to parliament. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now I'm really excited to welcome on to this program a guest who I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting, but now I get to speak with her about some very deep subject matter and it's something that I am really interested in and I have a feeling you will be too. I think this is probably going to get the text line going on 3RRR. So we are going to be talking with speechwriter and author Lucinda Holdforth about a essay that she has written for Monash University Publishing and it's called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Lucinda, for a better idea of her background, has spent time working previously in the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, and also Prime Minister and Cabinet at the federal level, obviously, having worked under the Hawke-Keating Labor government up to 1996 and was also speechwriter to Deputy Prime Minister Kim Beasley at the time, which is really taking me back I've got to say, to another era when I was actually politically engaged, but that's unique for someone of my age at the time. And she has also since worked with chairs and CEOs of top ASX companies to also support them in their speech writing and speech giving. And that's something that I certainly had to do when I was a not-for-profit CEO, was write my own speeches. But I think I ended up not writing them and just doing them off the cuff because I couldn't stand having to write speeches. So is that's why Lucinda exists. And it's so great that she does because it means that she thinks about language. She thinks about how we communicate and what we communicate and it certainly relates to our values and our virtues and she's now going to be talking not only about how they're not serving us personally but how they're not serving democracy so thank you very much Lucinda for joining us and thank you also for your patience today it's great to have you great to be here Amy and um, thank you for that very kind introduction 
Oh, it's my pleasure. I um, have been really excited to talk about this topic with you and um, reading through your essay, there are so many different things to draw out and it's um, often hard to know where to start. But I think the most obvious one for me is to, I guess, think about defining what a virtue is in the first instance, because, you know, we often think of ourselves as holding values and we act on our values, but virtues are something else as well. And they've been talked about across millennia. And obviously at the beginning of your essay, you highlight the different civilizations and their respective virtues that they have prized, including China and Confucian virtues of ritual respect and education. Uh, You talk about the pre-Socratic Greeks prizing self-knowledge, proportion and excellence, um, and that being synonymous with virtue, and then also the ancient Romans who were uh, very much into courage, order, and vigour. But there are other virtues who, that have since emerged or um, been prized more highly in some ways, not only in the 21st century, um, but also in the 20th century. There was a whole different set of virtues. So can we get a sense from you, first of all, as to what you consider a virtue to be and some of the different virtues we might be familiar with um, from previous civilizations and previous centuries? And then we'll talk about our current virtues um, that have really emerged and, and what those are. Yes. Um, virtues, are, they seem like a very old-fashioned word now, don't they? And I think we probably associate them with the period of um, religious belief, in fact. We're now in a secular society, so we tend to talk about values, not virtues. But, of course, every society does, um, consciously or unconsciously, elevate certain ideas and make them important and valued in the culture. So if we, if we look at um, the Christian era in Western civilizations, we have the Catholic virtues um, and then the Christian virtues um, and I really noticed this when I went to stay with a friend up the coast in New South Wales, and on the board in the spare on the wall in the spare bedroom there was an old snakes and ladders board, beautiful old thing from the 1930s, and it had if you know snakes and ladders, you know if you land on the ladder you get to go up, if you land on a virtue you go up, and if you land on a snake's head that is a vice you go down. So this was like a snapshot of what people thought virtues and vices were in the 1930s. So the virtues were things like, and in fact, I'll tell you what they were, they were faith, forgiveness, self-denial, kindness, pity, penitence, obedience and truthfulness. So that is really a portrait of what that society saw as the virtues that were um, admirable in individuals And because I believe that the virtues a culture elevates shape a society to a great extent, we can see that those virtues are part of what was shaping that culture. We can also see it in the vices. So on the Snakes and Ladders board, there were a huge number of vices. Um, Frivolity was a vice. Unpunctuality Mm. was a vice. Um, Avarice and covetousness were a vice. Well, now in a neoliberal world, it's kind of mandatory. Um, Vanity was a vice. 
uh, not today. Um, dishonesty was still a vice. Selfishness was a vice. So we've, we, what we see is um, really a, a new order emerging now in this century, a new order of virtues. And my aim in writing the book was to say, well, let's take a look at these because they're shaping children, they're shaping our culture, they're shaping our economy and society. And it's important that we articulate to ourselves what we believe in it is good. What do we think of as good and in behaviour and in our society? Absolutely. We do need to, to reflect on that. And, um, you know, the the virtues, the 21st century virtues that you identify as being common among us and also yes. having commonalities between them are virtues that might on the face of them sound really good. Um, yeah. yep. And I'll read That's them out. True. Yeah, yeah, because I think people, when they're going to hear these, are going to say, well, how could you argue with these? So let's Indeed. yeah, let's hear them. Uh, we've got authenticity, humility, transparency, empathy, vulnerability, and self-care being some of the major ones that you list and highlight and also explore in detail in this essay. And uh, there is an interesting thread between them, which you point out, which is that they're very much all focused on the individual in a different way, in, in some kind of way, in a, the self and subjectivity. Uh, and, That's right. And, and it being not necessarily outwardly focused on community and society and the benefit of the greater good and the collective. And, you know, I think about that issue. It reminded me of um, speaking with Hugh Mackay uh, years ago, talking about how we need to, you know, reach out to our neighbours and to take action and to be, you know, embedded in our communities and thinking about others and, and not just talking about it. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to Triple R would support doing that because they're doing it right now by, you know, subscribing to independent media that's taking action. But these particular virtues, 21st century virtues, you say, are not really about the collective. They are about the individual. Could you tell us why, you know, that's the case? And then we can talk about why that's a problem. But, you know, why is this the case that authenticity, humility, transparency, empathy, vulnerability, self-care, why are these 21st century virtues very, you know, individual-centred? Well, um, Look, there'll be others, no doubt historians will want to trace back the origins of these so-called virtues. I trace them back, funnily enough, to a TED Talk given in 2010 by a very nice sociologist called Brené Brown. She gave a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability and it's still one of the most watched TED Talks ever. If you go into a bookshop in the self-help section today, it's not about self-improvement anymore. It's about how to accept and love yourself even more. And that is the fundamental Brene Brown message. So she says, um, she, she started off by saying the problem with society was her American cohort was the most addicted, medicated, obese and in, indebted cohort in American history. And instead of looking at the social causes of those problems, she said the problem was a failure to be connected and that when we showed our vulnerability, 
that is how we could connect and address these problems. So um, she's written these various books. They're called things like Daring Greatly, um, and the main theme of that book is the great dare is to show up and be seen. It's not to take action on climate change. It's not to contribute to a better world. It's a personal goal. So when I look at this, those virtues together, and I would add another one which sort of is, relates to the old virtues and contrast with them, which is my truth. Uh, we used to have truthfulness, but now we place a premium on the idea of my truth, my lived experience. Um, and the Prince Harry um, book, Spare, is a classic example of that. So if we have just these virtues and in the absence of the older ones, like truthfulness, self-restraint, um, kindness, then we end up with a culture that prizes individual uniqueness, personal experiences of reality, subjective experiences of reality, and most of all, the quest for self-acceptance and self-love. So that is self before society and feelings above facts. And a democracy, um, the great Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa says, has to be based on facts, truth and trust. And without them, you can have no shared reality. So I, I fear that these virtues do take us inward um, and, in a sense, um, into a state of almost solipsism rather than outward to our society and action. Yeah, it certainly is something that, I've noticed a lot more of as well is that when you don't have a shared set of facts that everyone is speaking from, um, you can't make progress because then you are constantly debating the premise of the issue rather than the issue itself. <laughs> exactly. That is so true. And what's even more remarkable, Amy, is that these virtues, so when I sort of looked around, they're everywhere. They were spouted from everyone from CEOs of the big rapacious corporations through to progressive leftists, progressive activists, university vice chancellors, school principals. So this is this is sort of a consensus that has emerged almost overnight, not overnight, perhaps in the 2010. Mm. Um, and you're right, the, the bit that's most worrying is the subjectivity and the loss of a shared reality. And if we don't have that, how can we solve problems, as Maria Ressa says? Yeah, it, it reminds me of when I was growing up and think I actually was thinking about this because, um, you know, I was an avid reader of newspapers when they were in print and there were issues in the news like climate change that were becoming a big issue, um, but, you know, other political issues as well. And I noticed that more and more there wasn't just like, well, this is what the issue is um, and we're all going to maybe disagree on what the solution is, but here at least we agree that, you know, the climate is warming and, you know, the emissions have actually gone up, not down. And now we're actually, you know, tweaking around the edges saying, well, are they going up or down? And is are humans really involved? There's so much more grey. There's so much more subjectivity. There's so much more emotion. There's so much more perception. Um, there's um, not this, well, here's some rational, cold, hard facts, and now we can, like, have it out over what to do about it. And I think that that's what is so frustrating. And you obviously, obviously see that 
it play out more extremely in places like America, in Donald Trump's America, where, you know, he is being, I guess, his authentic self in a way because he's just being <laughs> he totally a total narcissist. Yeah, but, you know, we're seeing that play out in a severe way, which is that, well, there really is no shared basis of reality, I think, in America because uh, it's just completely everyone's own um, individual, you know, focus. Is it, I guess, interesting to think that uh, Brené Brown being an American, coming from an American cultural context, has brought this kind of individualism? Because I know that American society is often and has been known for that focus on um, not just the the liberalism of individuality and, you know, anyone can have the American dream, just pull yourself up from your bootstraps, but there's also that next level of, you know, individuality, self-focus, um, you know, it's about me first and then maybe I'll think about everyone else. You know, I have a theory that's not in the essay. I thought, why did Brene Brown, why did that idea become so popular in 2010? And I suspect it's the follow-up to the GFC, which was 2008, global financial crisis. America came perilously close to collapse. And there was a huge, I think, at that point, this, the, the end of that confident America you're talking about, where individualism was about striving for self-improvement and success. In the essay, I talk about Ben Franklin, who was kind of the, one of the world's first self-help gurus, amazingly, founding father, genius. Mm. Uh, and he was there writing his list. There was this sort of optimism that you could make a better self in a better society. And what you see in this Brene Brown thing about vulnerability is a kind of defeatism almost, a kind of um, looking back inward. And I wonder if that is part of this, the decline that we all have seen in America. Um, I could be wrong, but that's certainly a perception that I've had. It's almost... Um, and, and Donald Trump is a, like the classic symptom of that because he speaks to people's anger about this decline this sense that things are going bad and they can't control it. He's, he, he stimulates, as you say, feelings of anger, um, dejection, loss of that success feeling that they had as a nation, uh, and, he, and he pushes those buttons very brilliantly. I mean, to me, in a broader sense, it's an undermining of the Enlightenment. I mean, the whole point of the Enlightenment was an idea that reason got us places <laughs> And the reason that really worries me is because what we see in totalitarian regimes, in Putin's Russia, uh, in the old Soviet Union, was uh, also an undermining of the Enlightenment with mere ideology and feelings. So the great writer Milan Kundera was in Czechoslovakia, his country, in 1968, when the Soviets invaded and he noticed how passionate the soldiers were as they searched him in his car. He said they were full of feelings. And he said, when feelings are promoted to the rank of value and truth, which is what we're talking about, they can become the basis for intolerance and they can become a justification for a superstructure of brutality. And that is what worries me. If we were to extrapolate, live with these, just these virtues, we are heading down a path that's antithetical to reason and to democracy. Mm. Mm. Well, you also quote one of my favourite historians, Timothy Snyder. Oh, uh, yes. Isn't he amazing? 
<laughs> we share a lot, I think, Amy. Yeah, I we think we read the same lot people. Of, I think we do. We share a worldview. <laughs> yes, Timothy Snyder said to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. Post-truth is pre-fascism. Pretty yeah. powerful words. It's true. Powerful. Yeah, that, that true. last statement, post-truth is pre-fascism, that yep. should be on a bumper sticker um, because <laughs> it is. And, you know, fascism is not some remote issue or or idea anymore. Um, it certainly wasn't in the 20th century as I've been um, researching in my own uh, life. But there's also, you know, that thing that you mentioned about emotion, it reminded me of Susan David who I um, – I found out she's actually a, an alumni of Melbourne University and I saw her speak once and she actually was on a Brene Brown podcast, which is the only reason why I have even heard of Brene Brown before. <laughs> um, and Susan David, the thing that she said that resonated with me and she's a psychologist uh, also at Harvard and she was saying that, you know, our emotions aren't like this really solidly reliable kind of compass that we need to kind of follow and also see as some kind of really objective um, basis of evidence, you know, that our emotions, yes, they're an indicator, they're a flag that something might be happening, but they're not just something to kind of be blindly guided by because that can often mean that we, you know, get overwhelmed when we say verse I'm anxious versus I'm feeling anxious. And what does that tell me about what's happening in my life? You know, she also is very anti-toxic positivity, which I am as well with this idea that you can just think yourself happy and, you know, things will be all fixed. She's a very sensible person. And that's why I was so surprised that she was on that that podcast. Well, maybe Um, she's trying to, to cure to cure the faithful of Brené Brown. Maybe. She might have got through to them. It was a two-part podcast, um, which, yeah, Brené was very getting into it. So, anyway, I, I just it, – it made me also think that Susan David, what she was saying is supporting this idea that, you know, our emotions aren't just something that we need to, um, I guess, be affected by in a way that can be overwhelming or that that might be blinding or that might be, well, that's my objective um, experience now because I've felt that emotion and that's how things actually are. You know, we need to think critically and have more self-awareness about what's happening to us. So I don't know, how does that factor into your thinking about some of these 21st century virtues? Well, I think um, it definitely goes to the idea of my truth. So Exactly as you were saying, this idea that your feelings are promoted, one's feelings can be promoted to say, my feelings equal reality. Well, that is a recipe for the decline of society, basically. Mm. It's the atomization of it. And that is why um, I think Stephen Colbert, the great sort of American comedian, political commentator, talked about the rise of truthiness, which was um, the period before Trump became president when um, he said people people felt things and that if they they may or they may be supported by facts but weren't didn't necessarily have to be to the level of trumpiness which meant you just had the feelings you didn't care whether they were based on any reality or not mm. so that's a, that's society splitting apart I mean we're not at that in Australia but Gosh, it matters to us if this is happening around the world. And it also matters to us to take care of 
the the common good. I think to think. So what worries me is, as you as you said at the beginning, people think, "Oh, these are all quite nice. These are lovely virtues. You know, mm. it's great. We 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 have our individual experiences and we share them." Um, but but my concern is that first of all, that's not going to help us solve. You know, that's not going to help us find the shared reality, which is the basis on which we can even start to address problems. But it's also a convenient distraction. So the biggest promoters of these virtues are, in fact, big corporations. They love it. They're all there with yeah. their pride floats and their, you know, are you okay days. They're all about, you know, feigning sympathy, support, love in the workplace. We're all bring your whole self to work. We're all we're all here. We you know we can feel feelings with each other. What are the real issues? Well, George Monbiot says it's neoliberalism, and even Martin Wolf, rather conservative economics writer, says the same thing. He calls it laissez-faire capitalism. And they both say that these are incompatible with democracy. So we sort of look, it's a look over there strategy, I think. And that's the other thing that worries me, this widespread... And, you know, when we look at the way universities have become sort of neoliberal organisations very largely as Mm. well, talk a good talk, talk a big game, perfect Brené Brown value. A lot of these big corporations, you won't believe this, but they get training in authentic leadership. There is a Brené Brown training course you can do. People do the training. And to me, it's staggering that we would take that stuff seriously whilst ignoring the really big problems we face as a society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, oh, gosh, that's getting me into a whole other area when I'm thinking about leadership courses, which they are very problematic in and of themselves. And I was just thinking when you (laughs) talked about um, the corporatisation of universities, I mean, wage theft. Uh, think about the strikes oh, yeah. that have just been happening here in Victoria with the universities, so many of their staff going on strike. Melbourne Uni had a week-long strike. Uh, other universities are taking part this week. You know, I know it's the issue issue is similar across the country. So you get to, to hear all these very progressive, um, you know, ideas, but then in practice, does it actually eventuate? Um, you know, we see reports around sexual assault on campus and whether they're dealt with particularly well. Um, yes. Let's let's talk about some of those other virtues that you've mentioned um, in this essay because there are some that have been grouped together in your piece um, and one of those areas is humility and empathy, which you kind of bring together in a way Um and I was really interested in that in particular because uh, you call them inflatable virtues. <laughs> and uh, and it's really interesting because there is, I, I think there's more awareness today at least that there is a difference between sympathy and empathy. So we've got that down. Um, but now there's often this, this idea that empathy is better than sympathy um, because, you know, sympathy is I can see something is wrong and, uh, you know, I, I acknowledge that, but empathy is I can feel that something's wrong or I can feel your perspective or point of view or your emotions or I can feel your suffering or I can put myself in your shoes, whereas the sympathy has a certain level of distance between one person and another. Um, yes. And then obviously there being humility, which is something that in Australia with the tall poppy syndrome is very prized 
uh, as a virtue. You can't possibly not be humble. So could you tell us about those two virtues and and what your thoughts are of them? Well, I called them inflatable virtues because I was thinking that in the old days people used to talk about being modest uh, and being kind. And I... I, you know, when I take over the country, Amy, I'm going to suggest we go back to those much more uh, modest and humble virtues. They they are about um, not necessarily blowing your own trumpet. Humility is creepy in a way when it's when it's this um, performative process mm. because um, it often means I'm not really humble. It means I'm saying I'm humble because actually I'm so great. Uh, and in fact, there was a French duke in you know the seventeenth century who said that humility was one of the worst forms of conceit because it was a way of proving yourself even more superior to other people, not only fabulous but very humble about it as well. Empathy is fascinating. Um, Brene Brown talks about empathy a lot, and she um, I find it hilarious has this story, an image of somebody's down a well and you walk by and you see them down the well and they call up, I'm down here, I'm all alone, you know, I need help. And and then you, the, the viewer, you're not meant to be a bystander, you go and sit down in the well with them. So, of course, the first thing I think is, wouldn't it have been more helpful to throw down a ladder so that person can get out of the <laughs> well? But no, you're in, you're invited to go and sit with that person but then even more, she says, oh, but if you, if you can't get yourself out, then you shouldn't get down in the well. So mm. self-care comes first. I mean, empathy, empathy is just about feelings. That's all it is. Empathy is uh, feeling someone else's feelings. Personally, I don't know what you feel, Amy. I can look at you and I can see you're in trouble. I can't feel your feelings and you can't feel mine. And that's okay. That's the human condition. We're very different. We experience things differently. But what we can do is be kind to each other. And that means action. And that's how we get back to the idea of neighbourliness, civic action, whether it's preserving the commons, whether it's, you know, looking out for the person in the flat next door. Um, To me, empathy is a convenient cop-out as a word. Um, Yeah. And... Yeah, I, you know, I don't really even understand what it's for, if you know what I mean. Mm. If it was empathy plus action, fine, but it's never, no one ever talks about the action part. It's no. just the feelings. It's interesting because, you know, when we think about the where empathy might be deployed in uh, our lives, it might be, for example, someone... Um, has passed away in their life or you've just come down, you know, with a serious illness or, you know, you've lost your job. Like there are a whole range of things where people might try and empathise and, you know, bring their emotions into your heavy emotions. And it can often mean that I think the person who's the one having that difficult news feels more guilty or feels more burdened or, you know, it feels even worse because they're making another person feel bad when they already feel bad. That's exactly right. I mean, I had breast cancer some years ago and the last thing I wanted was for other people to be as upset as me. That that did not help me. That was just an Mm. added emotional burden. 
um, you know, like so many women having breast cancer, I was just battling to kind of manage myself. And what I needed around me were people who were kind. And what I really loved, you know, I look back on that period and there were some really good things, which was the way in which different people helped me. So my brother couldn't cook, but he'd go and buy great food from his favourite deli and just come and leave and just leave them and go away again. Another friend was a great cook, is a great cook, and she'd bring dinners over for us. Mm. Um, another friend lived um, out of town, and she um, she was working in a secondhand bookshop, and she would just pick odd books and send them. I still have that little collection of sort of curated, lovingly curated books for me to read. And I felt like that was a gesture towards my recovery as well. It's saying, I know you're going to read these. If you can't read them now, you will. Yeah. So those actions, so thoughtful, but also based on their pleasures and their tastes and what they like doing as well. So, you know, everything on its own, okay, fine. But um, I think kindness and action um, and, and and the action generated by kindness is much more practical and much more um, achievable, in fact. It's, when I talk, when I think about these virtues, I think there seems to be a great deal of excuse for not doing much, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you act humble, you say I'm empathetic. It's kind of passive mm. because remember, the other virtue that's so important is vulnerability and this idea that we're all terribly vulnerable. Well, I'm a middle-class woman and I'm honestly, uh, for me to, to call myself vulnerable would be, you know, a travesty, in fact, mm. compared to other people. So encouraging children to think of themselves as vulnerable, uh, you know, seems to me really unhealthy, really unhelpful, and, and once again a distortion of reality. Mm. And then because we now have a cure for that, which is building resilience, uh, which is that painful word that I had to deal with in the um, <clears throat> gender equality space where women had to just be resilient um, and then they could fix sexism. Uh, you know, that was that killed me inside to hear that all the time. But, you know, now we do have this idea that we have to open ourselves up all the time to, you know, tell people or share our vulnerability, to be transparent with our vulnerabilities Absolutely. Um, so that they can also feel like they could, I guess, potentially relate to us uh, more and then we would seem more authentic. I'm using all of these <laughs> words that you're these using. Are the words. They yes, are. They and are. It, they certainly come up, as you point out, on LinkedIn as a, another example. Um <laughs> You know, I, I was really interested in that idea around vulnerability because you talk about privacy as being a, a flip side of that. Um, and obviously being vulnerable ne- isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but the way that it can play out if it is prioritised um Uh, you know, this idea that we need to share all of ourselves or to have our privacy eroded even further when we already have, you know, big tech corporations, governments, you know, essentially taking our privacy away from us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about vulnerability is that is a facet of the human condition. You know, Mm -hmm. we're all going to die. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to have a terrible breakup. Something bad's going to happen. Cost of living can't afford a house, whatever. 
So that's that's the human condition. What I find weird is elevating that to a virtue. Like that's not that's not a virtue. That's the human condition. And whilst resilience, you're right, that sort of odious resilience thing, that sort of buck up mantra of resilience, I don't uh, I can often again be a distraction. I absolutely loathe the idea of um, encouraging children to grow up to be, to think that being vulnerable, declaring it, kind of concentrating on it is a good thing. Um, And we see women in public life, you know, when something happens to them. Uh, When Jacinda Ardern um, left politics, for example, everyone said, oh, poor, you know, poor Jacinda, she was so, you know, she was so hard done by, she was so vulnerable. And I thought... Let's not call that strong, capable woman vulnerable. She had a great she had a great tenure as a politician, as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Mm. She saw the polling. She headed for the exit. I say, go Jacinda, and she'll have a huge international career. So I don't like tagging people with that. Even I think it's I think you know to call someone like Jacinda Ardern a highly successful woman vulnerable is to misuse the word. I think. Yeah. Well, she's very savvy um, politician. Very savvy. Yeah. But the but as you say, the other the sort of consequence of a world in which we say it's great to be vulnerable and authentic and tell my truth is in fact giving up your privacy, and that's a real problem because as we know, this is another feature of totalitarian regimes, increasingly also of our own neoliberal regimes. But I see people giving up, willingly giving up their privacy. Um, and what that tells me is that we've lost the sense of our um, the prime importance of our kind of personal humanity. And by that I mean that, you know, we are like each person is like a tree. We grow, we branch out, we change, you know, we feel the winds of circumstance. And what nourishes us are the deep, the deep roots that we have underground and hidden. Um, and, um, you know, great writers have written about the importance of this love of private life, um, not just for artists, but for citizens Mm. as well, the value of that. Um, so George Orwell, um, wrote a great essay in 1941, uh, in which he was speculating about the possibility of a German invasion of Britain and what would happen. And he, and he lovingly wrote, that one good thing was that the Brits were a nation of crossword puzzle doers and pigeon fanciers and liked the pub and the tea room. And he said, and and the two worst words you could hear in the English language were nosy parker. And he said, uh, he thought it was pretty unlikely the Gestapo would get a hold in Britain because of that love of the private life. And Milan Kundera also talked about privacy being so important um, to preserving your humanity. And, in fact, he had a great line about, he said, um, he said the man who is the same in his public life and in his private life would be a monster. He would be without spontaneity in his private life and without responsibility in his public life. So it allows me that we expect our leaders now to be what we would call fully transparent to us. I don't need to know all the details of their lives. I just, I need them to do the right thing as leaders. Obviously, leaving out crime and, you know, egregious actions, but people need 
a private life to nourish their humanity and their capability to serve. And we've forgotten that. We seem to have forgotten that. Yeah, there's this level of accessibility that's required now to the people that we, that lead us. And I guess it, part of it is around that idea of personality politics, which has come, yes. become so popular. You know, I still remember writing blog posts in the early thousands about how it's now all about personality and not politics and how, you know, yes. Julia Gillard's going to be the real Julia now, not the... Oh. Not the old Julia that wasn't real before. She's changed. You know, that was a, almost a joke when that ca- when she came out saying that. Um, I don't know who was advising her then, but you know that, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Amy? A that major one. But yeah. you know, now we call it personal brand, and we all pretend, mm. you know we all take it seriously. And what a repellent idea! What a trap! I mean, we must be allowed to evolve and change. Great leaders change their minds. And we, we mustn't hold people captive to something that they thought 10 years ago or did 10 years ago, you know. It's, it's just a terrible mistake. So, yeah, I'm very down. I'm down on the personal brand, I have to say. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's not just it's bad for the individual and it's bad for society because mm. it's a way of pigeonholing people, I think, Um and not allowing them to change and flourish and evolve in their lives. It's so true. I mean, I would really hope that everyone has evolved in some way in their life. I certainly know I have, thankfully. You know, it's, yeah, you would expect a leader to, given that they're often in a kind of crucible of issues that they're dealing with, depending on their level of responsibility. Um, And obviously not every leader is a good leader. Um, but, you know, these are things that do form us and transform us. Um, it, it's something that, you know, LinkedIn is an, a great example of perform performativity when it comes to authenticity mm. and vulnerability and transparency. Right. And, you know, we there's a lot of oversharing um, going on. Over- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm like, I do one LinkedIn post a year and it's subscribed to Triple R and then I go back in my <laughs> hole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't do anything again. Um, but there's one yeah. other thing I just wanted to bring in because I saw this um, meme or I guess like post on Facebook and as soon as I saw it, I went, I have to get Lucinda on the show. <laughs> and it was a picture of Sarah Jessica Parker. It was posted on, I think, the Marie Claire Facebook, which I don't know why it came up in mine because I don't follow them, but she had a quote about self-care And it probably isn't what you think it's going to be, but I'm going to read it out for everyone. She says, I think the concept of self-care makes people feel terrible and lousy and isolated that they can't afford access to or even dream of self-care. And I thought that kind of sounds a little bit like what Lucinda was saying about self-care. So there you go. You have Sarah Jessica Parker, an ally, (laughs) on your your point about (laughs) self-care. And I, I agree because I think that you know, there, there's so much uh, inequality in society. There's uh, many different intersections causing that inequality, disability, class, gender, ethnicity, religion, so yeah. many different aspects. Um, and, you know, f- taking one example, a very really obvious example, disability and chronic illness, a lot of those people are just struggling to get by and function 
let alone have any idea of what self-care is. Um, and this does seem to be something which has been corporatized, monetized, like Valentine's Day gets monetized and love gets monetized. This idea of individual self-care has now become an economy. It really has. And, you know, when I, um, I, I, I find it, you know, I, I do find it really quite appalling. I mean, obviously, a healthy citizens who have means and capabilities like me and you, we have an obligation as citizens to look after ourselves as best we can mm. um, and to make the most of ourselves. That's, that's absolutely kind of part of our duty, in fact. But when you make self-care this kind of virtue on its own, what I want to know now is at what point does self-care become selfishness? Is there, is there no end to the self-care? And as you say, even more than this, um, what about those people for whom just living is really hard, really hard? And, mm. you know, we've had on the news stuff about uh, people on sort of the welfare payments in Australia and there's been a slight increase. And you think these are people living in the in this high-tech, very difficult world with a range of disabilities and disadvantages, and they're not going to be very good at managing their budgets, right, or whatever. And yet, does that mean, do they get con consigned to the unvirtue column because they're not great at making money and self-care? I think they do. I think it's neoliberalism in action, this virtue of self-care. It's, it's really, it's really, it's, it's wrong and it's mm. dangerous. Uh, and, you know, there's an, Martin Wolf, the economist, he talked, that's where I think the term self-restraint becomes an interesting one. I, I used to be very much against self-restraint. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I was all in favour of just going for whatever. But nowadays I think I see what it means in a social sense that it's not just about the complete pursuit of your own pleasures and interests. Uh, or beauty <laughs> or longevity, which is kind of the modern passion. Yeah. It's got to be it's got to be in the context of society. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. That's what I think this essay brings back to me is this idea of putting the individual back into the collective, that it's yeah. not one or the other. It needs to be both, um, and that everything needs to be thought holistically, not just, uh, as an individual self. Um, I wanted to just finish this conversation by, I, I don't know, thinking about if these aren't the prized virtues of the 21st century, what are the ones we should hold up as being important? And I know you've said kindness. You've also said modesty. Um, what are the alternatives? Alternatives to what we've been talking about that might seem the same or similar but are actually putting a, a different emphasis and giving us a different way to act, guiding us in a different way? Different way. Well, I think I think there is merit in bringing back some of those outdated, like I think truthfulness could really do with a run <laughs> more <laughs> than my truth. And that goes to the idea, as you, you and I have talked about, about kind of reality. Self-denial, definitely. Kindness. Um, trustworthiness, I think, is another important word, and that's about making a promise and keeping your word. I think that's a very beautiful virtue that should be brought back. Um, but I would also add, I think we, Western society moved out of 
Christian virtues, right? And we're now in a secular world. But what makes our secular world good isn't um, capitalism, it's democracy. So my interest would be in thinking about what are the democratic virtues we should have. And I think that's something to do with being rational, optimistic about social participation, some of those sorts of virtues. And I can't, you know, I'm not, I can't dictate, but I would love, I would invite people to think about what, what do democratic virtues look like and how can we, how can we bring them to the floor and talk about them in a way um, that has the passion evoked by uh, Brene Brown's self-care and authenticity. I think we need a renewal of commitment to democracy, to free speech, um, to those those core values of that, and that that is how we will preserve ourselves against totalitarian totalitarianism and also against the worst excesses of neoliberalism. Yeah. Yeah, well, what a great way to end that conversation. And also, I think, um, Lucinda, uh, yeah, we must have similar bookshelves because I, um, when you mentioned that French thinker, I was like, I have his book uh, oh, sitting above my bedhead. I, I know. Let's, let's have some. <laughs> I love it. A shelfie is, I think that's what they're called now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking about Francois de la Rochefoucauld. and the Duke um, de la Rochefoucauld, yes. I wrote a book about Paris and the women of Paris, and oh. he, uh, he features in that book as part of the, the sexy salon, the cynical salon society of Paris. But, boy, they had a lot of wisdom, those guys. They oh, my gosh. They were on well, about. <laughs> we are literally about to go there because we're going to be talking about Voltaire and Diderot and Catherine the Great in the 18th century. So that's pretty perfect. I'm going to have to read your book now. Um, so, yeah, Rouch- Rouchefoucauld's Collected Maxims and Other Reflections is a great book if anyone wants to just dip into little ideas because they're only little thought bubbles or aphorisms. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Lucinda. And people thank can also you, read you. your essay, which is very easy to read and dip into as well. Um, and it is out through Monash University Publishing. It's called uh, 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Thank you so much, Lucinda. Hold forth for joining us. Thank you. I've just been chatting with Lucinda, who is a speechwriter and author, and as you can tell, has written other books and including another book on manners, which I'm also very pro uh, manners. So, yeah, check out Lucinda's essay. It's really, really thought-provoking. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are going to be heading into my next conversation with Darius von Guttner, who is a historian based at the ACU in Canberra, and he's going to be telling us about Catherine the Great, the real true life story of Catherine the Great, which we are doing because we're very inspired by The Great, the TV show The Great, which is streaming on Stan in Australia and Hulu in America. And that series, unfortunately, I found out has just not been renewed for a fourth season, which I'm completely gutted by. Um, But it is really an interesting show because there are clearly big differences between what happened in reality and what happened in the show. There's a lot of artistic license 
It's used to great effect, though, and it's used by an excellent Australian uh, writer-director, creator, Tony McNamara, who's also known for his film The Favourite. It is, as I said, one of my all-time favourite shows because there's so much humour in it. It is fairly lewd, crude humour, which is why I also love it. It's very verbose and it's also um, really creative and definitely has a lot of flair and the sumptuous scenery and costume design has been well awarded through different awards as well and as I also said the 18th century is my favorite century so without further ado that I welcome onto the show Darius von Gutner who is a historian based at the Australian Catholic University in Canberra and he has written a conversation article which really goes into who Catherine the Great was who this series is depicting and the people around her. And uh, the title of the article, if you're wondering, is Hulos the Great depicts her as humorous and vulgar. The real Catherine the Great is perhaps even more interesting. So welcome onto the show, Darius, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Now, I wonder whether you, like me, are just as much of a fan of this show. Um, I know that for historians, when anything that is historical is depicted, it can be difficult and sometimes painful and sometimes squirmy to watch, uh, you know, a show show something that might not be true or might not be exact as it happened. But from my perspective as a viewer and also someone who studies uh, art history, I felt that um, the great, the TV show is so far removed from reality, I guess. It's a lot more inspired by than this is a documentary. It, it was so different and I guess also so quirky uh, in its style of, of delivery um, that I feel less insulted or offended in terms of my historical identity <laughs> to, to being true to uh, what actually happened in history than um, perhaps if something was just slightly different or slightly wrong or uh, yeah, slightly inaccurate. And I wonder whether you have the same feeling or if you disagree and what your thoughts are, first of all, of The Great, the TV show. Well, I, I, as a historian, I almost get angry when I when I see another show that is kind of uh, showing us the um, historical past that we we all agree upon and uh, that is so set in stone that we understand about you know, understand every aspect of it. And yet, as a, as a recipient of this uh, of this work of art, because let's say this TV series are, is just another work of art. Um, I know, I just, I love it in a sense. <laughs> I love it because it is so unexpected, because mm. um, it is so modernized, because it is outrageous uh, in a sense that uh, shows us that uh, you know, royalty can swear and royalty <laughs> can behave badly, but not just behave badly like Marie Antoinette, but they had, you know, they can behave really badly. And they can do outrageous thing. And uh, rather than setting stone on a pompous style, for example, of the crown, um, here the great is just absolutely hilarious. 
Oh, it is. It's like laugh out loud hilarious. And I rarely laugh out loud at something. Uh, and I even managed to co-opt my dad into watching it, which, you know, is saying something because he's not a typical watcher of anything that might have period elements to it. And as you say, it, it can often be very dry and it can make, you know, these royalty um, and, and these leaders look austere and and very serious but this is anything but serious but there are also it it should be said light there's light and shade there are serious moments to it and anyone who's watched the third season will know that for sure um but i i don't know i wanted to to draw into our conversation today elements of uh, the great the tv series but then also of course talking about the reality, like what what historically actually happened, and um, I guess the differences, and and what makes Catherine the Great so great. Was it bold of her to say, um, or or for her to be referred to as the Great? We know that there was someone called Peter the Great, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. When I was thinking and reflecting on Catherine the Great, the figure. Um, I, I, you know, I thought she's a woman, first of all, who is leading an empire. Um, she's also not necessarily unprecedented because we also had uh, Maria Theresa, um, who was also leading a nation or an empire as well. Uh, so, you know, there was also at least two great women uh, of the 18th century, uh, Maria Theresa being ruler of the Habsburg dominions between 1740 until her death in 1780, um, and then obviously Catherine the Great having some overlap in terms of her reign as well. Can you tell us a little bit about Catherine the Great? Contextualise us, if you don't mind, um, her for us in terms of her historical significance within the 18th century. There are a number of ways we can look at Catherine. Um, and I think what is, I think, important for us to, to, to kind of look, because you mentioned Peter the Great. Peter the Great and Catherine the Great um, uh, on those monuments that uh, the Catherine built to honour Peter, uh, she uh, used to um, uh, put the the, um, uh, the the words Peter the first, Catherine the second, as if she was the direct successor of. Uh, she was the second only to Peter the Great in terms of Russian history, and indeed she is. Um, but she enters the historical stage of East Central Europe, and. At the time, we, we already had two female um, successes to Peter the Great. We had Empress Anna, um, so um, uh, that's one person that was already there. And then we had um, Empress Catherine, and um, we have uh, also uh, Empress Elizabeth. This is the, um, uh, the person that makes a decision about Peter III, so Catherine's husband to succeed the throne. And it is Elizabeth that in a show is just presented as an Aunt Elizabeth. Mm. Um, in real life, she is um, the person that orchestrates the marriage of Catherine to Peter. Uh, she's the person that holds the throne for quite some time and who brings another element of this female succession. To be a woman and the autocrat of all the Russias, to be empress of Russia, is not unprecedented. Um, what's unprecedented about Catherine is she had no claim to the throne. She's not related to the ruling house. She takes power in Russia in her own name, not as a regent for her son Paul, but when she overthrows her husband, Peter III, she crowns herself 
empress of Russia, and she there are no excuses. She does not pretend that she's doing it in any strange other way by creating a false, false claims. She says, I am the empress. I am empress in my own right. And I think this shows us um, how Catherine understood the core of what rational autocracy was about. It was a person on the top, whether they were male or female. This was the person that governed every aspect of the empire's life. They set the tone. They had absolute, total, despotic power over the empire. And uh, I think her grasp of that principle made her who she was. She was the ruler. Uh, she was a woman. She was mother. Um, she was essentially a founder of every of her descendants who cannot claim to be descendant of Peter the Great or Peter the Third. Um, they are her descendants. Um, this is this is uh, something absolutely fundamental to this to this house. They are no longer Romanov. They are Catherine's descendants. And now, um, what she does to Russia, um, her reforms, the idea of bringing Russia into Europe. I mean, the famous phrase, Russia is a European country, she says, in one of her legislative instruments. And yet, um, she's not constrained by being European. She brings uh, what she likes about European ideas to Russia, but at the same time, uh, the way she destroys Poland, Lithuania. She installs her lover as king of Poland, and then, when he's not compliant with her wishes, she destroys him and she destroys his country. Um, so she brings Russia into Europe. She makes the foundation but to a greater degree than Peter the Great, that Russia sets very firmly in Europe. It's no longer on the eastern um, borderlands of Europe. It's firmly in East Central Europe. That's mm. our Catherine the Great. That's why she is the Great. Yes. And the coup that occurred, I mean, this was you know, significant. It was depicted differently in the TV series um, as compared with reality. And what was interesting to me, uh, you just talking there about her becoming the true empress of Russia. I mean, someone who might hear about a coup might think, well, is she a legitimate ruler then? But as we know with Russian history, uh, it wasn't necessarily you know, the the woman has gives birth to an heir, and then the heir takes over, and the woman doesn't get, um, you know, doesn't get to become leader. This was a different system in Russia. So, in fact, her rule was legitimate, and she was seen as the the empress of Russia by her um, her subjects. So, you know, this is not uh, some kind of willy-nilly, I just wanted to take over for a little while. Um, you know, she really did actually become leader. In, a, in her own right, as you say. And obviously, when I was doing a bit of um, research on this one, you know, I was thinking about Peter, her husband, uh, and just how, I don't know, vacuous he is, but also very funny. And there's a lot of debate in the scholarship about just how vacuous, annoying, and um, I guess regressive and frustrating Peter was to Catherine as well. Um, and I wondered, what are your thoughts on that? What's your take on her relationship with Peter, her husband, and he, the way he's been characterised? I think it's brilliant to see Peter um, in the way the great is portraying. And, of course, I haven't seen the whole series. I've seen some some of the episodes. Um, I really enjoy the way he's made far more real and human in this. Um, mm. Yes, he behaves in a rational way. Yes, he's erratic. But 
on the other hand, the, you know, the portraits that we have of, of uh, Peter III are always showing him as kind of, you know, um, I don't know, boring. But this show makes Peter um, uh, really uh, rebellious, uh, really different uh, in, in many different ways. Uh, I think the reality of, of what Catherine, um, uh, Catherine uh, encountered when she, uh, when she went to Russia was um, that Peter was unpredictable, that Peter did not offer her protection, that Catherine's life depended on decisions of Empress Elizabeth. So in the show, they are showing us the different side of Peter, more realistic side of Peter, but at the same, that, uh, that brings us to this kind of conclusion that Catherine had to fight for her survival, and it was her or Peter. And the moment Peter was the emperor, um, she realized that unless she acts to, you know, she might be his next target. He, mm. She could not trust him. Um, he could not um, protect her, and he had no vision of Russia. She, she understood that Peter did not really understand what it meant to be emperor of Russia. Indeed. No, he it doesn't sound like he did. And she, you know, came from Prussia, uh, which was Germany. So she also has that element of being culturally an outsider. She also identifies with enlightenment ideas and philosophy, uh, in particular philosophers. And she wrote a lot uh, of letters and had great correspondence with philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot, who were writers of um, the Encyclopédie in France. She even wanted to support them to write that um, Encyclopédie uh, when it was threatened by uh, the French monarch. So, you know, she seemed to have something really distinguishing her in, a, in an intellectual sense. Can you tell us a little bit about her intellectual life, her cultural passions, and what drove her in that regard? I think um, we need to be a little bit careful about this because we, we, we talk about Catherine, uh, Catherine II as a politician. Uh, we talk about her as a woman uh, that uh, resolved a big uh, constitutional crisis in Russia by crowning herself emperor. Um, but she's also a person, of course, as you say, person of only enlightenment. She's, uh, she's fascinated by the ideas that of Voltaire. Um, she's uh, reading Rousseau. Um, I'm not quite sure whether she was reading Montesquieu as well, but she's definitely involved in that intellectual ferment that takes over Europe in the middle of the 18th century. She's very much like every other ruler. This brings her very close to her to, to one of her prominent lovers, Stanisław Poniatowski, that um, she later made a king of Poland. He's very similar to her in this regard. They read quite a lot. They talk about ideas of bringing enlightenment to the subjects of the respective kingdoms. And they talk about setting laws and justice and perhaps even the idea that their subjects are actually human and that serve them is wrong. So there's quite a lot of things that, that Catherine might have discussed. Um, as a young person, she's fascinated by this. As a ruler, she's corresponding, yes. She has a, a particular uh, liking for Voltaire. But you see, the moment the French Revolution succeeds and the moment the French Revolution um, dethrones Louis XVI, she bans all of this. She says, enough is enough. To go against your God-given ruler is against uh, against the law. It's against every principle of what monarchy holds dear. So Catherine is, on, on a personal level, she's fascinated by all of mm. this. Um, 
on the other on the other hand, I think when she realizes how dangerous the ideas of enlightenment, how separation of power goes against every tenant of of what it means to be emperor of Russia. There's no separation of powers in Russia, and there will not be separation of powers until the Bolshevik Revolution. And even then, you can say that there are no separation of powers because the dictatorship of proletariat will nullify all of this. So Catherine is a person full of contradictions. Um, she, she is perhaps like a lot of other European enlightened rulers that love, absolutely love the debate about rights of men. You know, in, mm. in terms of you know, kind of a precursor to human rights, um, the ideas of equality, the ideas of education, and she pursues um, education in her own kingdom as well. And I don't know if we can say that she brings any Prussian ideas as such, because Prussia under Frederick the Great, of course, is an absolutist monarchy that also loves Voltaire, but superficially. Uh, on a personal level, on a person of intellectual debate, but not indeed. No one is introducing rights of men into those kingdoms. They go quite contrary to, in, in a different direction into um, creating regimes and structures of subordinating individuals within the kingdoms to the rule of, um, of the monarch. So yes. Interesting, absolutely fascinating. And I don't think we're going to get into it um, uh, as much as we would like. And perhaps here, the, the greatness of the great is it gives us, um, uh, you know, we can question, did she really like it? Did she really espouse it in, in her own life? Or was it just a lot of empty words and just a fascination? Mm-mm. Not yeah, she was not um, willing to to do those things if it was going to threaten her absolute power, which you know that is the mark of a savvy politician and leader. Self-preservation. Uh, indeed, indeed. And I know that, um, as you said, we won't get into all of the detail that I wanted, but uh, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun is a very famous uh, 18th century French painter, female painter. She did meet Catherine many times and has written about her presence, um, the fact that she was short and a bit plump but had this very strong presence about her, the way that she held herself. Um, there was a great level of admiration that her people had for her. And, you know, we see in the TV show The Serfs, um, the people who are not necessarily slaves but people who are tied to the land um, that they're working on. And apparently she did come up with some small reforms, like if you were freed as a serf that you wouldn't be forced back into serfdom. Uh, but it, it sounds like it wasn't necessarily um, as revolutionary as she was hoping, as the the great TV series uh, point or tries to convey. It's very difficult again to kind of really understand the nature of this because was she was she really so revolutionary? Was she did she want to change all of this, or did she like it at the beginning and only then she realised that if she does this this will essentially bring her kingdom down. Because, you see, the, the, the big conflict between Poland, Lithuania, and Russia at the time is on a cultural level. Uh, Poland, Lithuania uh, includes modern Ukraine within its boundaries, even though President Putin wouldn't agree with it today. Um, but um, there, uh, to be a serf is to have basic civic rights. In Russia, you don't have those rights. So you have those peasants that escape across the border and are treating as a human person just in Poland, Lithuania, but in Russia, they are still in a basic slavery. Um, 
I think there is there's a quite a lot of grey area here, and I like uh, the way you bring, uh, bring the the the, uh, uh, the society painter um, uh, Elizabeth uh, Lebrun because um, she captured uh, a reality of 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 Catherine in a very and and she gave us this insight into how um, she, Catherine was received. A lot of other uh, publication diaries, journal writers, um, uh, tell us about Catherine as being a very strong personality, as being a personality driven by ideas. And whether they were ideas that kind of promoted equality or else, that's a different story. But clearly, she was a person that discovered uh, that a woman can be in charge of Russia, followed in the footsteps of those three um, female empresses before her, and created an environment in which she could thrive as a person. She could um, implement her ideas across the empire. But at the same time, she's a quick learner. She understood what autocracy actually meant. And she understood that to unravel the very tenets of the, you know, the basis of it um, would then mean that she would no longer exist um, because there was no place. Um, and her son, um, her son Paul, um, think about the succession. There was never another female ruler in Russia because her son decided that uh, women will not be ever again allowed to succeed. You know, mm -hmm. the case is uh, Nicholas II, for example, he did not envisage any of his uh, daughters to succeed, even though they would be brilliant to, you know, why not Empress Olga, for example? Uh, this is quite a, quite a shadow that Catherine cast on her family, that the, the, the men within that family never again trusted um, the um, uh, female descendants to take the throne. Mm, what a shame. What a shame that that's the case. Um, I really, really hope that people can watch The Great, but also to read your piece, which goes into more detail as well on some of her backstory and to even just do their own research because I've thoroughly enjoyed reading about her and, as you said, reading um, Vijay Lebrun's account of her and also, you know, these ideas that she valued, the fact she got the smallpox vaccine and encouraged others yes. to do so, that she was a patron of women artists when it was very much not a thing to be a woman artist in Russia uh, not until the mid 19th century. So there's a lot in that show. There's a lot in her story. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to share just a little glimpse of who she was. I hope it's picked everyone's interest and taken them uh, to the 18th century. So thank you so much, Darius. Thank you very much. I've just been chatting with Darius von Gutner, who has very kindly joined us. He's a historian from the ACU in Canberra, uh, and you should check out his piece on The Conversation. I've put a link up there on the Triple R website. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.